Welcome back to the Sermon Recap Podcast. In this last edition, for the time being, we talk about some interesting topics, capital punishment and covenant theology, both of which are in everyone's top five favorite phrases that start with a C, uh, right behind coffee break and chocolate ice cream. These are two very different ideas, though, neither of which uh, were covered by Matthew in his sermon from this past Sunday, since neither were the focus of the sermon, though both were present in some way in the text. We don't exactly go in-depth on either, but we hope that it will be a help and an introduction to those who are curious. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the Sermon Capital Punishment Podcast, uh, where this week, that's right, we talk about capital punishment. So, for time's sake, uh, Josh apparently has to go let a scissor lift guy in pretty soon, so we're going to let him go ahead and start with his fireball of a first question. This is just ministry. We, We sit down to try to minister to our people, but we have to take a break because the scissor lift guy is coming. For some, for some context, we're we're getting new projectors installed, so it, it you know it is exciting. I promise I didn't intend for him to get here in the in the middle of our podcast, but it is fitting that I'll be able to ask this question and, and then just leave. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, just drop the uh, mic. Then just, then just get out of dodge. That's more or less. Uh, that's more or less how we we function here anyway. So that'll uh, that'll be great. Yeah. Well, so go ahead and. Well, I I do want to say first of all that. Um, Matthew, I thought you did a fantastic job uh, not only handling this text, but uh, preaching it in a way that was compelling to our hearts, um, and I was really encouraged by it. So first of all, kudos for that. Uh, really, really appreciated it. And and I actually appreciated the way you handled verse 6, not getting into the capital punishment weeds on a Sunday morning, I think was a wise move, and yet... Um, it is an important topic to talk about. And so I kind of want to frame the question this way. Um, can we at least say, regardless of how we would want to take this verse, uh, which comes, by the way, pre-Mosaic law, um, so regardless of how we want to take this verse, verse and apply it, uh, when we look at our justice system or even the justice systems that have existed throughout the world, throughout history, can we at least say from this verse that... Um, Capital punishment as a principle in and of itself is not unjust. So maybe you want to start there. Could, could you read the verse? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. So, yeah, verse 6, uh, God says to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So maybe you want to just speak to speak to that. For yeah, a bit. yeah, it's... Yeah, and the the choice to not mention this in the sermon is could could have done a sermon just on you know the value of human life as it applies to to crimes committed in in the United States specifically. Uh, yeah, the point that was emphasized they emphasized the principle, and and the principle carries over and can be applied in in support of of capital punishment um, for sure. There's there's a life for life. Uh, 
justice demand in this passage. Yeah, even even back at verse five, and for for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then, yeah, you have that poetic, you know, uh, verse six: uh, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. Uh, so. You know, some evangelicals have have taken this verse and, and they just say, OK, obviously, every single government under the sun should be putting to death anyone who who kills another person. And and so I, what I would say, does does Genesis nine specifically support the death penalty of uh, uh, applied to and executed by by governments? I would say possibly because of the principle, but not necessarily because of the the flaws of of humans and and human systems. So, yeah, first of all, life for life justice is clearly required because of the dignity of every human. I love, you know, the reasoning, the motivation here for God made man in his own image. So the Imago Dei demands life for life justice. Um, we, we have these two principles that, that come to bear here. We have the principle of human dignity, but then we also have the principle of divine justice. So the fact that God rec- uh, values every human life means that he requires justice for anyone who would uh, take human life. So it is obviously a severe evil to take any life that God has given. And even as I say that, it sounds so simple. I feel like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bobby Newport in, uh, in Parks and Rec. I'm against <laughs> crime and I'm not afraid to admit it. You know, um, <laughs> it, it seems so obvious, but, but it bold. is, yeah, just a bold claim here. Murder guys, it's bad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it is, it's bad. And it's bad because every single human is created in the image of God. And so God requires justice. The blood of Abel cries from the ground, you know, for justice, and, and the Lord is the one who brings it. Um, here's the only thing I would say to that. I, I don't believe that this verse gives us quite enough information to determine objectively whether capital punish- punishment should exist in our justice system. Uh, so that's why I say not necessarily. Um, uh, you know, there are those who who have argued that this passage falls more into the category of vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And and there are a minority of scholars who who would argue that that even the translation is is not correct, that that the Hebrew in, in this, you know, should should actually be, uh, uh, you know, translated a little bit differently. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm limited in my you know knowledge of Hebrew, but but it seems seems a fair translation here in the ESV. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. But just wanted to mention there are some that would say that, that it's a little more ambiguous in the Hebrew. And so they would say that uh, the life is demanded, but it's who's taking the life uh, for justice is is a little more ambiguous. It should be like primarily God who is executing justice and, and vengeance belongs to him. Um, I, I would also say it it is a pretty big leap um, to say that the content of these two verses alone absolutely and obviously requires capital punishment as we know it in the United States or in any other nation. Um, we, we just have to assume a lot. So, you know, for example, by man, his blood be shed, that, that little phrase. I mean, does, does that open the door for a person to just track down the man who murdered 
you know, his brother and, and kill him. You know, I mean, is this is this just talking about just like frontier justice as as we've seen in, in the past? Um, and we've all felt that way. I mean, I, you know, I actually had a cousin who was who was brutally, brutally murdered um, in, in eastern Kentucky. And I'm telling you, man, like my distant relatives, they were they were picking up their guns, man. They were ready to go. They, if they would have found that man, I, I don't know what would have happened to him. Probably never heard of him again. Um, and so we all have that desire for justice, and, and sometimes it, it comes out in, in vengeance. So obviously we don't believe that that's what this verse is referring to, that you can just take it upon yourself to go and kill someone who killed, you know, someone else. So there's a lot that, that we assume here. Um, uh, you know, if, if we say that we support the death penalty, we are presuming a fair trial of, of the person who's been accused. We are assuming that there is guilt that's been established beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, we're assuming even that that verdict is carried out under, you know, the jurisdiction of, of governmental authorities. It's not just a family who's, who's doing, you know, uh, uh, just a random trial of their own. I mean, that this is, this is happening in the courts of a country. Um, and, and so Assuming all of that stuff, here's what we know. We know that our justice system is flawed, not just the American justice system. Any human justice system after the fall is going to be flawed. And so there's always the possibility that men and women could face death for crimes that they did not commit. And so since that's a reality, I think that we, even though based on the principle, we can say, yes, um, life for life justice even executed by fallen humans under the assumption of fair trial, guilt beyond reasonable doubt, all, all that stuff uh, is, is possible and, and even right. We, we should be cautious because we, we are so fallen. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, so all that to say, I, I, you know, while I believe that this principle of life for life justice is clearly outlined in Genesis 9, I don't think it automatically demand support for the death penalty. It just, it depends on what that means. You know, as it is in America, I think, I think we can get there, but you know, who knows? There are other countries where if there were unjust laws that would lead someone to be executed, we wouldn't support the death penalty in that, in that circumstance. So we just have to assume a lot more that this passage doesn't give us. So if I could summarize it to one phrase, it sounds like you're saying that you think this passage permits the death penalty, but that doesn't require it. It permits it, but it doesn't require it. That's yeah. a good way to put it. And then, and then the, the narrative of Scripture doesn't support the idea that necessarily, even, even under a, you know, a, a government that um, is administered by God, it doesn't always require that this happens. That's right. You know, you think about murderers uh, in in the nation of Israel. Uh, and while there are consequences for those, it's not always a one-to-one. -one, right. Uh, you think about King David right. who committed murder. And yes, there was a consequence for that. Yeah. Um, but it's not so easy to take this and say, oh, look, King David committed a murder, and then, you know, he was tried for it and killed for it. Right. Uh, or you think about the Apostle Paul in the, in the New Testament uh, who was killing Christians. Yes. You know, and you don't see that this... Uh, principle neatly applies there as well. And right. so um, it's it's very difficult to say, like you said, Avery, that it is required in every circumstance. Yeah. And yet we can use it to say it is permissible, um, you know, in some cases. And I, I don't know of anybody who would be arguing for the death penalty who wouldn't also say this, but um, the only permissible way, according to this passage, that someone could be 
put to death um, by the state would be in a situation of um, murder, like willful, intentional, yeah, murder. you know, murder. Um, so like, you know, when they, when heads were rolling in the French revolution, you know, by right. when they were, they were just murdering people in the streets. That, that was not the death penalty in the biblical permissible right. sense. That was, that was murder. Right. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's, that's also, um, important to remember is it is, it is something that's very serious when you're talking about taking the life of a man that is, extremely extremely weighty so yes and what's what's abundantly clear here is the value of human life and, and right. i believe that's the that's the main point it's and, not to be degraded it's not to be demeaned it's not to be destroyed and, and because every human is created in the image of god yeah that, and that's probably a good rubric um for i guess christians to think about the death penalty is you know uh in a case-by-case basis does the death penalty here does it contribute to that value of life or is it, you know, just further degrading it? Like, exactly. you know, is there, is there muddy water here? Um, is this just going to look like, you know, injustice, you know, someone put be put to death in an unfair way, you know, so anyway. Yeah. All right. So I had a completely different uh, question. Um, so we, we talked about capital punishment. Uh, now I want to see what you think about lowercase punishment. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, spare uh, the rod. <laughs> anyway, don't spare the rod. Don't uh, spare it. So, so that's one C, uh, capital punishment. So, I'm wanting to ask about covenant theology, the other C uh, from this from this passage. So, in it, you mentioned that God made a covenant with uh, with Noah, um, and that that was one of other covenants. So what are some of the other covenants? Yeah, and and this, it, you know, it, get, it gets to the conversation of the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism a little bit. Would you, would you rather answer that? No, no, no. Um, the, the covenants, according to covenant theology, uh, break down into two, two, you know, major categories, and then there are the individual covenants that we see within them. You have the covenant of works, and then you have the covenant of grace, and the biblical covenants that they, they see throughout the scriptures are, you know, the covenant of works, the covenant with Adam, uh, you have the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant that we talked about this past Sunday, uh, you have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis uh, 12, 15, 17, you have the Mosaic covenant, or, you know, what we call the old covenant, um, and uh, then you have the Davidic, and then you have the new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I won't make you explain each of those in detail or anything. Uh, but I was also wanting to know um, some basics about the difference in covenant theology and dispensational theology, because um, it's probably some terms. Those are probably some terms that we've heard uh, thrown around, you know, in our our church life. I remember I grew up in a church that was. Um, very dispensational uh, in like this, like this is part of our church culture kind of way, which is interesting, you know, like everybody had a Schofield uh, and, and that was, uh, and they, and so it was, uh, it was a good church. I don't mean to, to say anything uh, bad about that. It's just, that's just what I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Could you, um, could you explain the difference? Well, yeah, there, there are a lot of differences and, and maybe we could do another episode where we, really dive into to those differences. Uh, both of them are ways of understanding 
the unfolding of redemptive history. Um, and so dispensationals view it in terms of like epochs, like ages, you know, that, that unpack uh, uh, that. And then covenant theology views, uh, uh, it, it, well, covenant theology sees the whole Bible as unified around the basis of covenants. And so uh, God's plan for redeeming all of creation unfolds through a series of covenants throughout the scriptures, you know, start, starts with the covenant with Adam, uh, which is based on his obedience. And then from there you have uh, the covenant of grace, which, which unpacks through the Noahic and, and Mosaic, Abrahamic, Davidic, and then ultimately the new covenant. Um, yeah, the, the, that's, so that's the primary difference that uh, covenant theology sees God's, re, God's uh, relationship to humanity primarily through the lens of these series of covenants. And mm-hmm. so that's, that, that's the, the primary marker of, of covenant theology. Right. Yeah. And then uh, dispensational theology would be different in that it, it emphasizes more like epochs or eras, yes. you know, in, in scripture. Um, and I think the way that they see uh, God is relating um, to humanity. Uh, I think they emphasize more difference and, um, and the dispensations, you know, the little little sections uh-huh. of time. Then in covenant theology, I think where unity is there's emphasized more, Unity more. is emphasized. There's more continuity, even though there is discontinuity, you mm-hmm. know, within covenant theology. And there, there are different, you know, versions of covenant theology, but basically, right. yeah, that's... That's it. If I could recommend a resource, and this is this is just my take. I mean, I think it's certainly possible to be very faithful um, in your understanding of the scriptures as both a, a covenant theologian and Absolutely. a dispensational theologian. But um, if if I could recommend this resource, that's in keeping with with my take. It's uh, a book called Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter J. Gentry and uh, Stephen J. Wellam. And uh, it's described as, and this is kind of where I've always been on it, it is described as, and I quote from the Amazon description, uh, a thoughtful and viable alternative to both covenant theology and dispensationalism. Uh, and they do a great job of exposing the, the strengths and weaknesses of both sort of systems of interpretation uh, to say you don't have to land squarely in one of these camps, but, you know, you can understand the unfolding of God's redemptive plan by, by looking at the, the strengths and, and sort of disregarding the weaknesses of, of both systems, because generally speaking, uh, you know, dispensational theologian is going to see um, a lot less, if not no continuity, exactly. you know, between the Old and New Testaments, uh, and a covenant theologian is going to see maybe more continuity than we're comfortable with right. between the Old and New Testaments, and so... Um, you know, just kind of putting it out there that there all there are alternatives to well, just landing squarely in one camp. Yeah, Dwayne Garrett at Southern Seminary is really helpful with that as well. He he sort of had a, a hybrid approach in that way, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, but yeah, covenant theologians will, for instance, come to the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, and they see it as part of the covenant of of grace. Right. But it really looks like a covenant of works as they define it. And so mm-hmm. so they struggle in, in how they, they make that work, you know, in right. their view. Covenant with Adam, there's, you know, they're like, okay, there's no covenant language here, but you can see it if you look hard enough, you know. And, you and know, they say the, the same thing about infant baptism. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I, so that, that's why even in, like, covenant theology, there's, you know, 
there's and any dispensational theology there's different levels of like seriousness you can take yes. it and so because like so I, I knew a presbyterian one time who um who was we, we were just chatting you know and of course it, it was important that uh you know pedo baptism would come up and he just mentioned he's like yeah you know he's like i just believe this because like i believe in you know covenant theology and i believe that the bible's unified and i looked at him and i was like oh me too yeah, yeah. And we just kind of stared at each other, and I was like, well, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's different ways that you can, you can interpret that. Oh, yeah, I, I've, I've met a guy who said, you know, I, because I tend to lean more on the covenant theology side, and, and he basically told me I could not be a covenant theologian unless I was reformed all the way and, I know, yeah. you know, accepted and infant baptism. I know, and it, that's, um, to me so strange because it's like uh it's just it's just so anyway anyway it's just a particular application it's not you don't have to take the whole system like that um but that's what uh and one one important distinction just uh, i think it would probably be worth mentioning i think kind of uh kind of for me demarcates like why i wouldn't consider myself a dispensationalist is that a dispensational theology, I think most of the time, I, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't read everybody. I, don't, I haven't talked to everybody about it. But there's this belief that um, in the Old Testament, the way that you were saved was fundamentally different than you. Like, exactly. you're not saved by Jesus if you were born before Jesus. And so you can only be saved by Jesus after um, Jesus came. So anyway. One yeah. one more book also um, involved Stephen J. Wellam, and this one is the editor. And this is maybe a little bit more palatable because it's more of a collection of essays and articles that, that Wellam has compiled. And it's called, are you ready for it, Progressive Covenantalism. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of the term that I think that he that dubbed, is a good book. Um, you know, to, to sort of give you an option that is kind of a go-between. Yeah. yeah. Maybe and we could link to, to various books that... I'll, I'll try to do that in, yeah. the sh- in the show notes. They, they, for for reasons that are too complicated to be interesting, uh, it's it's hard to link to things in a normal way with the way we're doing things. So, but I'll try. That um, assumes that the other things we talk about are interesting. That's yeah, right. true. That's right. Yeah, this is so this talking is, about links might be as interesting as anything else we've talked about. I know. So that's one thing. <laughs> this is a, I will say like covenant theology, dispensational theology is a really nerdy rabbit hole that you know feel free to go down, but that you do not have to be well versed in covenant theology or dispensational theology or whatever to understand scripture and you do to not. understand the, I mean it's just a way of organizing what's it, there. It's, it's that's really, all it yeah, is. It's, it's so, a way of unifying organizing it. That's it. Yeah, don't don't if you if you're hearing these words for the first time, like don't panic and go buy a bunch of books, feel like you've got to to learn all this this week, uh, to be a faithful Christian. That is absolutely not true. Also just, you need at least six months to read through Kingdom through Covenant. I, oh man, that's a that's a like that's why I also wanted to recommend progressive <laughs> covenantalism. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's you can what, just you, choose various articles within that, yeah. you know, and yeah, Josh didn't tell you that it was a 500 and 600 page book. So, anyway. All right. It looks really good on the shelf, though. It does. Which is actually it, maybe just as important as reading it. I was going to say maybe that's more, even more important. important. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, how much space it takes up in your shelf. That's why you buy the, uh, the box sets with lots of books. Yes. Um, all right. Well, this just about does it for the sermon recap. We appreciate you listening, and we hope you have a great day.